If you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. You should be in chapter 1. Turn over to chapter 2. And uh, the passage today is actually the end of what Jasper spoke on last week. If you were here last week, uh, Jasper explained that there are new things that happen in the community of God's people. And even before that, I have to explain. So, so Jasper, let's picture him here. He preached last week. Todd was talking about the individual transformation of people and how God has brought them out of death into life. By grace you are saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works. No one is going to boast. Then over here you had Jasper talking about because this is true, you are now brought into a new community. Because you have access to God by grace through faith, you are a new man. Jew, Gentile, hostility that was there is removed because Jesus Christ removed it and created a new man, a new person, a new humanity. The passage today we're going to look at, it starts off, if you look, it says in verse 19, so then. And I love this. I, I, I think about the analogy of, of a, an eye doctor. You know when you go to the eye doctor and they put that thing over your face and he goes, let me know, is this blurry? And you can't see a thing. I mean, it's like terrible. And then he goes, let me know when it becomes clear. And he starts flipping And the anticipation is not that it's going to get more blurry. The anticipation is that it's going to become clear. And then as it does, you kind of get excited. I do. I'm like a little giddy kid. Like, (laughs) it's getting clear. Look at it. I can read. This is great. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, right there. Right there. That's perfect. I think if that's what God has been doing in our hearts through this passage as we've been traveling through it in Ephesians. And that is what we're going to see. We're going to see that God is giving us even more clarity on what it means to be new humanity. And one of the things we're going to see is that he talked about in verse, let's see, it's in verse 15. He said that Christ abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances to create in himself one new man in place of the two. And so if you look at it, there's this idea, so then, because there are new creation blessings that we have because Jesus Christ has done this. And so we're going to look at these new creation blessings. So read with me in 19 to 22. He says, you, or sorry, so then, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now as you read that, the first part you see in verse 19 is that God has given us new relationships. The first relationship that he says is that you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. Christ is has made us citizens of God's kingdom. That's the first thing. Christ has made us citizens of God's kingdom. If you think of what Jasper was talking about, about those who are far off, those people who are over here, there's the commonwealth. There's the kingdom. You and I are over here. Because of God's work in bringing us to Christ, he has brought us into the kingdom. And he says that you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now the saints there, some people think they're Old Testament believers. Who they are is anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Whether Jew or Gentile, no matter it's a 
man or woman, as Galatians says, a slave or a free man, it doesn't matter. Anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is part of this new kingdom. But notice he says you're no longer strangers and aliens. I think of being a tourist, okay? So Corey just mentioned that he went to Turks and Caicos. He's not a citizen of Turks and Caicos. The guys are about to go, and they're going to Jamaica. They're not citizens of Jamaica. They have no rights and privileges there. And you think about being susceptible to fear when you're in another country. You don't know it. You don't know the language. You don't know other things. If you travel a lot, you know that there's almost this this excitement, but then there's this tension of being in another country. Because you know it's not your home. You're a stranger and alien. That's what you were. You were like the guy with the fanny pack and the camera walking around in Rome going, you know these people. They get off the bus and there's immediately pictures taken of the bus that they got off of as well as everything else. And there's always group pictures going on. That's, That's a tourist. Okay, but you know that you don't belong. The idea of a sojourner is the person with a residence visa. Now, I understand that there are some people in our congregation who are not citizens of the wonderful United States of America. They are resident aliens from Canada, Mexico, Ohio. You know, they're from various, various places around the world. And understand that, that they don't have privileges that you and I have. They don't. There's a significance of citizenship when you are a citizen. I think of, he's writing obviously to a city in the Roman Empire. Paul himself was a Roman citizen. Think about all the benefits that he had as a Roman citizen. I'll list some of them. One, you could vote. You could own and inherit property. Think of that. Own property if you're a citizen of Rome. You could travel freely throughout the entire Roman Empire without fear of being stopped by a guard and abused, either with certain restraints that they put on you or other things outside of that. If you were bothered by anybody, if you were, let's say, kidnapped or hurt or robbed, they would send the military to deal with that for you. If you were kidnapped and taken somewhere, the the military of Rome would say, go and get them and bring them back. They are a citizen of Rome. You do not do that to citizens of Rome. I think about even the fact that you would be exclusively subject to Roman law and jurisdiction. Think of Paul the Apostle. He says, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. He goes, okay, 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 to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. I think of other instances of Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen, and he talked about in in Acts. I love how Luke describes this. There's There's this commander who's about to beat Paul. And he looks at him and he goes, do you really think it's wise to beat someone who's a Roman citizen without a trial? And the guy goes, whoa, I'm I'm sorry, what are you? Oh, I'm a Roman citizen. He goes, "How, how in the world are you a Roman citizen? I had to pay a great amount of money to that. He goes, I was born one. Eyes pop. He's like, okay, we gotta, we gotta take care of this guy. Think also in Acts when, when Paul is imprisoned there in Jerusalem, And the Jews were planning, 40 men, I believe, were planning on not eating until Paul is killed. Paul's nephew hears about it, goes and tells the the leader, the commander. And he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to protect Paul. He says, get ready a detachment. Listen to this. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight and provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Think of that. He's a citizen of Rome. This man is going to get to wherever he needs to go. Nobody is touching this guy. Church, we're a citizen of heaven. 
We just talked about how God is the one who fights for us. He always has and he always will. And I would argue that Paul's greatest encouragement was not the fact that the Roman Empire was on his side. But think about the times when Paul was in prison and God shows up and says to him, Paul, keep preaching here because I am with you. I am with you. That's powerful. That's the kingdom that we are in. Our king is with us. And I want you to be reminded, we talked about it in summer camp. This was the verse that we looked at. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Think of that transfer. He brought us out of one kingdom, the domain of darkness, and he transferred us by his grace into the kingdom of his beloved son through forgiveness of our sins. And we saw that previously in Ephesians. I also think, uh, whenever I think of this passage, I think of uh, Martin Luther in the Middle Ages staying in a castle. I've always wanted to live in a castle. I I know that there's kind of like creepy things that happen in a castle. I think of like that night. There's always like horror movies in castles. Okay, so I understand that. But the truth is, is that Martin Luther was in this castle and he was protected by a lord of Germany when the Catholic Church was trying to silence him. He was taken away and cared for in a castle in Germany. And it's interesting to think that Martin Luther is translating the Bible into the common language of German during the time, and he is writing also a hymn. And many of you know, it's it's probably his most famous hymn, but it's, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I'm going to read that to you because I love the words here, because I think of being a part of a kingdom, a mighty fortress is our God, just makes me giddy. This is what he says. He says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and he's armed with cruel hate. And on earth is not his equal. But then he says, did we in our own strength confide? Yeah, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. The Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. You see, the prince of darkness is grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And he says, and that word is actually above all earthly powers, and no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. So let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I love that. I honestly, every single time I do that, I want to go, His kingdom is forever. I just did. So I wanted to do it, but I did it. But I think of this, what a glorious king that we have. And what a glorious kingdom that we live in. But then I think about it and I say, you know, that's all really nice, but how do I live as a citizen of the kingdom of God? How do I do it? Because here I am, I'm here, 
So what does it look like for me to live this way? The Bible clearly says that I'm to be in the world, but not of the world, because my citizenship is in heaven. So what does that look like? And I realize really what it's telling us is that there's always going to be a tension. Because this relationship was birthed, this relationship over here to the domain of darkness is broken. This was birthed by God's grace. This was broken also by his grace. We don't have the same relationship to the world that the world does. Think about how often we try to maybe have moments of joy last in our lives. Maybe you guys have gone to a conference or you have those epitome of great days. And you go, oh, I wish that that day would last. And then the reality sets in, guess what? We're in a sin-cursed world. We're not citizens of this world. Those moments are that. They're just moments. And they will last but a moment. And if we try to hold on to them, they're not going to stay with us because we're made for something more. And I think about the reality even of people who try to make all of their, their, their desires and their things here in the world. I think of what Ecclesiastes says, all we're doing is chasing the wind. You can't take any of this with you. I think of the old saying, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. This stuff isn't ours. This stuff should not hold our hearts. We need these things, and that's where the tension comes. We need a job. We need to pay bills. We need to do various things. We have responsibilities, but these things are going to be passing. So how much value are we placing in these things and missing the great value of being in the kingdom of God? I think about what Paul wrestled with where he says that in the cross of Christ, that is what has crucified the world to me and I to the world. A believer in Jesus Christ who's in the kingdom of God cannot continue living with joy over the things of this world. These things are going to be seen as what they really are. I think of people who spend hours and hours, my neighbor I can look out my window and see into his living room and that television is going almost 24-7. I don't know if he's in front of it, but I think of how much time, if he's really in front of that television, all that time. I just think, what, what are we doing? If I were to do that, I hope the Spirit of God would convict me and move me and say, Charles, no, 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 there's more. There's more. Move away from that. Move to me. It's funny that Romans 8 says something very similar about how the Spirit of God is given to us as a first fruits, and because of that, we groan. We groan. We see that there's tension. We see that there's brokenness, and we long for God to remove these things. But you know what? One day, all of our desires will be met. Psalm 16 says this, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand our pleasures forevermore because this king who brought us into a new relationship with him as a citizen of his kingdom, church, he is worthy to be served. It's the first relationship. The second one is not only are we citizens, but he moves from the city. So think of a big structure of a kingdom, but now he moves to a house. And the second thing we see is that Christ has made us siblings in God's family. Notice he says in verse 19, and we are not only fellow citizens with the saints, but we are members of the household of God. This goes back to 1.5 where he talks about that we were predestined to adoption as sons. That's really where he starts introducing the idea of the fatherhood of God. He'll talk about it later, but he also talked about it, look at verse 18. 
in chapter 2. He says, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The word access there is the idea of introduction to a family. I think of the picture, and I've never seen this happen, but I think about an adoption taking place and them meeting the family that they will be adopted into for the first time. I think about the significance of saying, you're no longer here. Come, meet your new family. There's an introduction to a new family in which now you live. There's a new family in which we live. I think about how, gentlemen, if you're married, the first time you met your wife, Maybe it was a funny story. Maybe it was a very romantic moment. Maybe it was an argument that you guys had was your first encounter. But think of that. That was a moment that you were introduced to someone that you would then spend life with. You had a a moment. There was always an introduction to a relationship. And that's exactly what he says here, is that you are now introduced as a member of the household of God. Welcome to your family. And as Jasper shared, here's the miracle. These people that are family really shouldn't get along. They probably don't get along, but they should get along because God in his grace is revealing his saving power to transform people and to bring them into fellowship with one another when the world would go, what? That doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't make sense because only God would do this. And only God can do this. But remember, just like with the kingdom, peace in one area. So this family is now yours. But what about that family? Peace with one family tends to bring tension with another family. I thought of the example of he used last week where he had a Jesus, also known as Caden Hostetter, standing right here. And then he had people coming forward from there to Jesus. Think of it like this. When they were over there, they were in a family. They had connections. They had people who loved them and were with them. And God says, I'm going to choose you out of that family and I'm going to bring you to myself. Here's the question. The loyalty to this family, does it trump that one? It does. God has brought you into a new family that is more significant than blood. Believers should have more love for one another than blood-born family. Let me give you an example of this. Matthew 10. Jesus tells his disciples who are Jews to go only to the Jews and preach to them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what he says to them. He says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown them before my Father. Do not suppose. Listen to this. Okay, it kind of flies in the face of what Jasper taught us, but it doesn't. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, which probably isn't that hard to do. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household, he says. In fact, he says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. How often and how true it is that especially in this time, your life was with your family. Your life was with your family. And he says, I'm taking you out of that family and I'm bringing you to a different family. 
You ever have a time where you have unsafe family and you're sitting there talking to them and you're listening to them and they're talking about all of their problems and all of the things that they're aiming for and you're looking at them in the eyes and you are thinking to yourself, you're living for nothing. Everything that you're doing is chasing nothing. There's nothing in there. But the question is, do you see that as an opportunity to share your family with them? I think of too often we have the idol of peace in our family, that we don't want to disturb family. We want everything to go good. As long as everybody's happy, we're okay. But let me tell you, the only thing that's actually going to bring peace to your family members is peace with God. It's the only thing. You can fabricate peace, but peace is not the goal. Christ is. The gospel is the goal. I think of that also at work. I think about camaraderie that you have maybe at work. You get to know some of the people there at work, and you like them, and they like you, and that feels great. You actually enjoy going to work and seeing these people. But if they don't know the Lord, there's very limited amount of fellowship that you're going to have with these people. Sorry to say, your, your, your focus, your values are different. There's a time when they should collide. What do you do in those situations? Do you honor peace and friendship, or do you honor the Lord Jesus Christ? I think of so often, we're tempted just to let it be. But I think again, my friendship with people will not get them into heaven. I have to share with them Jesus. He's the only one who can change them. I think of Paul when he writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul suffered immensely had massive ramifications for sharing the gospel with his own people. Church, let us be reminded of that. But also I think of what John writes. We should never be ashamed of being a child of God. In fact, John writes in 1 John 3, he says, See what great love God has for us, that we would be called God's children. And that's actually what we are. That's amazing. He's totally lost over how amazing that is. And he says, listen, the world, it doesn't know us. Why does it not know us? Because it didn't know him. If it doesn't know him, it's not going to know us because we're connected to Christ. We're in his family. In church, our father who brought us into a relationship, just like our king who brought us into a relationship, into his kingdom, our father brought us into a relationship with his family. In church, he's worthy of our love and affection. Now, he kind of changes here in 20 to 22. He, he describes the house. So if you look at it, he says that he... He's made us members of the household of God. And then in verse 20, he says, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So he's showing us this is not just a regular house. This isn't just a regular house like we're used to. This, this very place is the dwelling of God. And God, one of the other creation blessings he's given us, is a new dwelling place. And I want to describe this as he describes it. The first thing he says is this dwelling place has a new foundation. Christ has laid a new foundation. He says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. For clarity's sake, he's not talking about Old Testament prophets. At first, when I was reading this, I said, oh, that's easy, the apostles and prophets, because obviously that's the only prophets I could think of. No, it's actually talking about New Testament prophets. Verify this. Look at verse 5 in chapter 3 which will be spoken on next week. He says, uh, in, starting in verse 4, he says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ 
verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So here he's saying it has now been revealed. So it can't be Old Testament prophets because it's now being revealed to the apostles and prophets. So think of the significance of this. God has given us new revelation to explain the very things we must understand because of Christ. Christ's coming was so significant that it mandated more revelation, more significant revelation to clarify and to give understanding to the very revelation that was over here. Remember the idea of the the eye doctor, the blurriness. I would say that's exactly what Old Testament is. There's expectation, but it's types and shadows. But then the fullness has come. And so the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament are speaking to the reality of what Christ has done. And if we waver from the truth of the word of God, we waver into a different gospel message. We waver to a different God, to a different story. It's not even this one anymore. Because what he says is there's also a measuring stone, a cornerstone, and Christ is that measuring stone. I use the word measuring stone. I know the text says that Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone, but that's the idea of a cornerstone. I don't know how many of you have a cornerstone in your house. I don't know how many of you saw a cornerstone, so I'm going to use the analogy of a measuring stone. It's simply this. You place that one first. Wherever that stone is placed, the entire structure is built off of that to be even, to be fresh, and perfect. If you lay that even just a little bit to the side, that will have a different angle to this house. You will be this way when you want to be this way. You lay this one right, everything else built off of it is perfect. That's the idea. Jesus Christ is the perfect chief cornerstone. Everything is measured off of him. And this is significant because remember, we're talking about a New Testament understanding of Old Testament realities. What Jasper said was what was true for thousands of years for Jew and Gentile relations. And Jesus has come, and he's put that to death in his body on the cross. So now there needs to be an explanation, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, based now on the cornerstone. This is here, so here's what this means for us. So it's this idea of us progressing in understanding of God's truth. It is truth in the Old Testament. There's nothing wrong with the understanding of Old Testament. It was just limited truth. It was, it was part. So it's the idea of truth leading to more truth and then leading to Christ full truth. Truth, more truth, full truth. Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 1, which is the memory verse of your kids, if you have kids in the... Uh, kids ministry. It says this in Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the entire universe. And the son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And this is what he's saying. All of it is pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament is Jesus foreseen. The Gospels is Jesus come. The Epistles is Jesus explained. And the book of Revelation is Jesus expected. 
So that's what you see. You see everything. Jesus is the foundation of everything because it's the, he's the center, but he's also the beginning and the end of the story of God. You don't have anyone else. You have no significance to the Bible if you lose Jesus. Jesus is the purpose. And that's exactly what he says. He says he is the cornerstone. But let me ask this. Do we see Jesus just as the cornerstone of the Bible, or do we see Jesus as the cornerstone of our own life? Do we measure our life on the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me, let me give you an example. It's not a good example because it's an example for my life. But this is what, it, what I'm reminded of. What do I do when I have a decision to make? What do I do if I have a decision to make? Usually I act decisively because it's usually something that I feel like I can handle, right? Just boom, that's the answer. This is what we must do. What is your reaction when someone says to you, hey, let's go ahead and pray first? I'll tell you my reaction. My reaction is, I already have the answer. What are we going to, what are we going to add if we stop and pray? Well, am, I, am I just going to pray and say, thank you, Lord, for giving me the answer? What, what are we going to do here? That's my typical way of functioning. But, you know, you, you have the time of prayer. And I don't know how your attitude is when you're actually having that prayer. But I'm thinking, in my worst normal sense, uh, can we get done with this so we can get back to discussing the very thing that we already know we need to do? Can we, can we move forward? Okay. Amen. Fantastic. So let's move on with what we were talking about. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for acknowledging, or for us acknowledging it. But then I think about this. And church, this hits me right in the face. I think about the Holy Spirit talking to me and saying, Charles, do you take every thought captive to Christ or do you take every thought captive to Charles? Do you have the mind of Christ or do you have the mind of Charles? Do you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly or do you let the word of Charles dwell in you richly? Because the problem is is that when I'm so good at making decisions on my own, then God really becomes an unnecessary addition to my life. I am leaving the cornerstone. I am leaving the very thing by which I measure whether or not I am following the Lord. But as I confess my failings, I want to honor the opposite. Uh, I want to share with you guys, uh, typically when those situations that I just described happen, it is in the meetings with the elders and staff. It's usually the elders who are the ones suggesting that we stop and pray. And can I tell you that our elders are men of prayer? They are godly men who will not move forward unless they spend time in prayer. And let me tell you, I would rather have men who will not move without prayer than have men who would only pray out of frustration like me when things have failed. Church, as we move forward, I think of the fact that Jesus being the cornerstone is very significant because that means he's the very fabric of our existence. He sustains all things by the word of his power. And because of that, he is the one, as we'll see, who is the one who causes the church to grow. Verse 21 says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so what he's saying here in verses 21 and 22, they're very parallel, but he says that Christ is making us the new temple. We are the new temple. It says, 
in whom the whole structure, in Christ, the whole structure, that means all of God's people live dependent on Christ, and we are joined together, and we grow into a holy temple in the Lord. Not only is Christ needed for aligning us, but also for the growth afterwards. Think of this too, that God is always about increasing the size of his temple. So church, what that means is that God does not want to simply rearrange stones in his building. In other words, in a lot of American culture, we like to do a lot of skipping around, church transfer, so on and so forth. I don't care what you do. Think of the analogy of Legos. My, my kids love Legos. If you start with so many Legos, you can only build something so big. You have to add Legos to make it grow bigger. God is about the addition of people who do not know him, who are outside of this reality of what we're talking about, in the domain of darkness, dead in the trespasses and sins, and he wants us to be about bringing and seeing people, by his grace, come into this new temple and being built together. That's what he wants. He wants an increase in size, not rearranging the inside. That's what he wants. Church, that's what we have to be about as well. And now in verse 22, he actually transitions. He turns away from the the whole structure. So think of the whole church. That's the commission of the whole church. And then he says this in verse 22. In him, you, you also. He's talking to the Gentiles, yes, but he's talking to the church of Ephesus. He's saying, you, church, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, notice it is in Jesus that we are being built together. There are three things I want us to see from this. First of all, he talks about a unity of purpose. The purpose is that you and I are being built together. Okay? Together. I want to flush that out. Look at Ephesians 4. Okay, so I know we're going to talk about Ephesians 4 later. We're only in 1 through 3. Just be gracious with me. Okay, because it's the same exact thing, just practical. So I want to talk about it just a little bit. So Ephesians 4, it says in verse 11, and we'll go through it quickly. He says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. How is this, or why do we do this? So that we can all attain to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he says, so that you and I would no longer be children. We're not supposed to be tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The devil, again, as a mighty fortress says, he seeks to work us woe. How do we battle that? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So again, growing up into him from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So first thing, is unity of purpose, because if you are in Christ, he says, you, you are equipped. Verse 16, every joint with which it is equipped. So every church is uniquely equipped. We are not a different church. We are this church. The people who are in this church are uniquely equipped to be in this church. And each part is equipped so that it would work properly, which is what he says. Each part is working properly 
That's what makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So here's a question. Are you giving yourself to seeing the church being built together? Are you giving time? Are you giving resources? Are you giving yourself? I just want to speak a word to those who are Sunday morning attenders. I think about if you have only connection, think about this, if you only have connection because you're here on Sunday morning, I'm just thinking practically speaking, let's say you showed up a little bit late today while the service was already starting. You sat down, you greeted maybe some people that you might have seen before and said hi. You were cordial with them. After this service is done, you will leave. Maybe you will talk to people, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll just go off. If, if I were to say that you are being connected and being a part of the church of God, I would say the church this is describing is not matching what you are doing. The very thing that it's saying here is that we are here as a body of Christ equipped uniquely for the building up of the body of Christ. So that means every part is working properly. Now maybe you would say, well, I'm not a part of your church. Well, okay. But if you are here, let's say you've attended for two years, maybe a year, maybe three months, maybe six months, who knows? When is it going to be a part where you start being connected to the relationships, giving yourself to relationships within the body of Christ? When is that going to happen? Because it will only continue to have you not connected and not feeling a part of the church because of a lack of working properly. I think of people who say, well, I have more fellowship with maybe my workout class or maybe at at my job. Yeah, that's because you're showing up there And you're there more than once a week for more probably than just 45 minutes, uh, maybe an hour and a half. You have more fellowship because you have more time with these people. Our connecting, our building up cannot happen simply on what happens here on Sunday morning. I have to say that. It can't happen. This is an aspect of building us up and equipping the saints. But this isn't the end goal. It's just us gathering together in this giant room and saying, hey, We're being built together. No, we're not. No, we're not. Remember what Todd shared in 2 verse 10, chapter 2 verse 10. He says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God has prepared in advance that we would walk in them. Same thing. Same idea. We're being built together. It also means uh, the second thing. Us being built together means that we are the new temple, and so we don't necessarily stop with telling people to come and see what we're doing, but we're to go and seek people outside of this. Think of that. In the Old Testament, when they had a temple, the people had to go to the temple to worship God. The New Testament tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That means we can actually go and take the temple wherever we go. Think of John 4 when Jesus is having that conversation with a woman at the well. He says, listen, there's going to come a time when they're not worshiping on that mountain nor in Jerusalem. It's not going to be location anymore. My worshipers, true worshipers, will worship me in spirit and in truth. That day, he says, is coming and now is. And let me tell you, it is fully now. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit makes us a temple so whenever you go home, God is with you. Whenever you go to work, God is with you. No matter where you go, the only significance this building has is because all of us are lights and we have the glory of God somehow dwelling in us and we are just a greater light shining and rejoicing in Jesus and little lights go out every, every Sunday. Little lights just take off. 
It's amazing. That's what it is. We go. So think of it. We have fall festival. We're asking people to come and see. But that's limited, right? That's, that's an opportunity. Hopefully that's a start of conversations that you'll have with other people. We have a disc golf course. Again, asking people to come and see. But hopefully those are conversations that you can have outside of those things. You have City Harvest. City Harvest, you're, you're actually going. But again, you're trying to build relationships. And you're trying to reach out into the community and share with them the very things that are true of us. We want to see stones being built together because God is glorified in that. The final thing I have to look at of this is being the new temple. This is amazing. God is always near. God is always near. I think of that when I'm at home and I'm staring at a television screen. I, I, maybe this is weird. Maybe you never thought of this. But I think Jesus can actually see through my eyes and see everything that I'm watching. He's in me. The Spirit of God is in me. The Spirit of Christ is in me. He's seeing everything. When I'm thinking thoughts, he notes every single thought that I have. He's reflecting on thoughts with me. He knows every thought I have. So when I'm angry and I don't voice my complaint, he knew everything that I was thinking. He's that near to me. If I try to seclude myself and indulge my passions, he says to me, Charles, I'm there. Where are you going? I'm always with you. But it's also so comforting. When I'm at my worst, I can think back of my history of being a believer, and there were some dark times when the Lord in his grace showed me, Charles, I am with you. Because I am the temple. We are the temple of God. And so God is at work in us And he is working for us. And church, he wants to work through us. I want to end with a quote by John Stott. He says this. He says, I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than that the church should be and should be seen to be by the community what God's purpose and Christ's achievement It already is. It is a single new humanity, a model of human community, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and therefore love each other. And they are the evident dwelling place of God by his spirit. He says when that is true, and only then will the world believe in Christ as a true peacemaker. And only then will God receive the glory due to his name. So for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel, church, let us be built together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would use this in our hearts. Lord, I pray that as we all prayed beforehand that you would show us, reveal to us, open our eyes. Lord, I pray for those who perhaps are frustrated by things in the world, trying to be a citizen of heaven, but knowing that there's so many responsibilities. Lord, I pray your grace and your passion be poured out on them that they would see and savor you in the midst of all of it. Lord, I pray for those who have broken families. I pray that they would understand that they are called in your family and they are called to minister to their family, but that they would shed the gospel there. Lord, I pray for us here and I pray for your church across the world, Lord, that we would understand the greatness of being called your dwelling place. 
Lord, you are not content to simply have our Sunday. You desire our entire life. If we are in you, you are in us. Lord, I pray that as we leave, that we would understand your presence is within us, and therefore there is great joy but great responsibility to say, do you know this Lord? Do you know this Savior? To our friends, our families, our co-workers, Lord, give us an increased heart for the lost. We don't want to see people go to hell. We want to see them united by faith to you and be redeemed for all eternity. Lord, I pray for the event tonight. Lord, I pray that our hearts would come longing to rejoice in honor of you. Lord, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your church, for the sake of your kingdom, do this, Lord Jesus.